Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue if you dare. Hello, dear fiends. There be monsters here, as agoraphobia legends join the frightening fray for this fatalistic finale. First, the eerie interlocutors, Daniel and Professor Claude Myron Goozer, from the Cannonball Podcast, leave the crypt to decode a pair of scary stories. Hello, and welcome to the Cannonball's Contribution to Agoraphobia. Uh, this is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me as always is Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how how you doing, man? Uh, I mean, given all of the, uh, the spooks and haunts and uh, <laughs> goblins about, I- I'm doing okay. As well as as well as can be expected, anyway. But no, we're we're thrilled to contribute to agoraphobia, uh, agoraphobia, agoraphobia 2022. Uh, this is, of course, one of our favorite times of year. Uh, we always love doing a special little uh, spooky episode, and we're kind of changing the uh, the tack that we take on this one. You typically, we like you know, like uh, we've done well. We'll we, we'll read the same you know the same works. Like we did our Ambrose Bierce episode. We did um, a little a little uh, episode all about the Gothic. Kind of you know more more typical cannonball fare where we're you know engaging with the same material, but this year we thought we'd switch it up with uh, Claude and myself assigning each other a spooky story or other media uh, <laughs> other media artifact um, to then uh, just see each other's response to it, and I think it was pretty fun. I th- we we had some we gave, <laughs> we gave each other some options, and of course in my own inimitable style, I gave Claude his options were one a Gene Wolfe story. Two, a short story that it cannot be found anywhere, and three, uh, a cool uh, uh, radio play. So uh, he went for the radio play, um, and uh, for for Claude. Now, what 
I, I remember which one that I selected. What were your three options for me? Well, there was uh, Saki's Open Window, mm-hmm. right? That's H.H. Uh, yeah. H. Monroe <clears throat> uh, writing under the pen name Saki. Uh, the second thing was The Body Snatchers by Robert Louis Stevenson, which mm-hmm. is a, a great one. Um, <laughs> I and I, and I didn't pick, pick it, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, and, oh, shoot, who was the third one? Well, no, I can't remember. Yeah, let's, let's, it was a good one, though. Oh, yeah. oh, yes, yes, yes. The Sandman by E.T.A. Hoffman. Um, if anybody's interested in Freudian psychoanalysis, The Sandman is a story that that sort of inspired a lot of uh, Freud's thinking about the uncanny. Oh, wow! And and I would have had a lot to say about that, but <laughs> you picked the shortest one possible. I picked and gave me a two-hour listen. <laughs> <laughs> But it was good. It was good. I'm not. I'm not actually complaining. It's yeah, actually yeah. A, a really cool experience. Uh, but yeah. So I guess what we can do is sort of get your feedback on on Saki and mm-hmm. why you chose that one. What was it about this one that, yeah. that drew you in? And uh, aside from the length, and <laughs> and sort of go through, you know, what <laughs> what this does yeah sure and i i wanted in my defense listeners in my defense uh i did not know the relative lengths of any of these works when i made my selection we just gave each other titles right um mm-hmm. so i did not know i was i did not know i was pulling the classic uh uh you know choose which reading assignment you're going to do tack of just looking for page count i did not realize <sighs> i was doing that um, I know, I, I know you face that a lot in your professional life, Claude. Um, <laughs> but no, this, this was one I selected because I, I know for a fact I had not read a Saki story since high school. That was the last time mm-hmm. I read any, any, uh, Saki or, or H.H. Monroe. Um, and I, I thought to myself like, well, there's, you know, there's a famous short story artist and I've been, I've been meaning to sort of engage more with the short story format these days i'll select saki mm-hmm. and boy how you, you weren't kidding this is a short story three pages uh, altogether, but it's a really elegant three pages it yeah. is a very efficient little story uh and i absolutely loved it i i will i will thank you for for recommending it <laughs> well this is a little story called the open window and um now saki was active in the late or I guess you know Munro writing under the name Saki. That was a what like Edwardian period. Yeah, eight, yeah. 1870, 1870 to nineteen sixteen. Um, okay. I told you I had a lot of digressions about this. <laughs> he was he was sort of uh, I guess a, a, a contemporary in some way of of Wilde, Lewis Carroll, Kipling, all of that stuff. Um, he he was. Born, I believe, in the colonies. His father was some kind of administrator or maybe policeman or something. Mm -hmm. And then uh, came back to England and was raised by family. He had, I think, two or three brothers. I think his mother died and he came back. He had uh, a a couple of siblings and then um, went back out to live abroad with his dad. His dad sort of took the family traveling. And when he came of age, he tried to be a colonial administrator, but was too sickly. And so he came back to London and got jobs in journalism and sort of became a writer. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was a lot older than... uh, 
than most soldiers. Uh, when World <laughs> War One started, he he enlisted. Yeah. He was already sort of like pretty old for a soldier, but they let him enlist anyway. And uh, he died. I can't remember which battle he died in, but um, his his last words. Uh, he he was killed by a, a German sniper. He was he was in a trench and was killed by a German sniper. Oh, wow. And his last words apparently were, "Put that bloody cigarette out." <laughs> well, that'll do it. Wow. Uh, which, yeah. which, like, honestly, given his his writing career, given the tone of his writing, that seems kind of morbidly appropriate. But sure morbidly appropriate seems like the best term to describe a lot of his writing. I I like to think about um, Saki's writing. There's a a really, really, really good, just very short selection uh, that was made from the New York Review of Books, I guess their publishing house. Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's this slim, fairly like relatively cheap volume with several illustrations by Edward Gorey. Oh wow! And yeah. so yeah, and so if you think about Edward Gorey, I, it, it's a, a reprint. But if you think about um, Edward Gorey and the kinds of morbid whimsy that yeah. you find in yeah. in Edward Gorey, um, it, it fits with a lot of sake. Um, it, it sort of fits a lot with with the the tone of his writing and i think it definitely fits with the open window which is a fantastic ghost story yeah yeah uh right so we can get into the the open window specifically um so it, it opens up with a uh, there's a certain frampton nuttle has uh <laughs> excellent name excellent name um but he is uh in the parlor he's been sent into the country for his nerves uh which was of course a a very common uh, sort of thing uh, back in back in those days, um, and uh, he's he's in the parlor at a kind of a you know this country this you know country home uh, with a uh, a young lady of fifteen who has received him as 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 a visitor uh, and says that her aunt the you know, the lady of the house will be, will be down presently Mister Nuttall this very self possessed young lady of fifteen as reads the first line um, so Mister Nuttall has gone into this rural retreat to help soothe his nerves. This is in a, a little town which he had never been to before, but his sister had stayed there uh, some, I believe it was four years prior. Uh, so he had some letters of introduction uh, to uh, from his sister for you know kind of people that his sister had met and you know would like write a little letter saying, yeah, this, you know, this guy's good. I, the letter of introduction, I think, is a really interesting phenomenon, just as an aside. Uh, <laughs> and I could see that being very... I don't know. I, I I could see that being very useful, like you know, in today, like if we could bring back the the tradition of a letter of introduction, um, just having you know a little letter to like. Well, I guess that's kind of how it is, like you know, character references, a <laughs> job application, but for like social uh, interaction. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Or yeah, or, yeah business card kind of thing. Yeah, is, yeah. Is how it goes? Uh, uh, that was always the thing. You leave your card with somebody. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah. But uh, so uh, you know, Mister Fram, Mister R- uh, Nuttle Frampton is is chatting with the uh, the young lady, uh, and saying he you know he doesn't really know a lot of people around here. He's just you know here for the nerve cure, he's hoping to get a little society while he was while he was there. And so the the <laughs> the teenager's like, so then you don't know anything about my aunt? And he's like, oh, you know, only only her name and address. Uh, and so she says that, uh, oh, well, then I guess you wouldn't know that, well, after your sister's time, a great tragedy happened to her. And this, uh, this, this girl goes to re- recount this tale where 
the uh, her aunt's husband and uh, uh, her, her two brothers had gone on. She she notes that like oh the the big you know you might wonder why on this chill October afternoon we have the uh, the large French window opened up. I had to look that up. Uh, a French window is apparently another term for basically a French door, like just a big yeah, yeah, yeah. double doors with a lot of windows in them. Uh, I was a little confused for a second, uh, but they they left it open because uh, some years ago, three years ago, her husband and uh, her two brothers went off for a day's shooting. They were going snipe hunting, snipe shooting over in a, a tre- you know, what turns out to be a treacherous piece of bog there on the estate. Um, so of course you leave the door open for when they when they would come back, uh, but on that that dreadful day, they uh, went tramping out there and and were sucked into the bog. And their bodies were never recovered. And her poor aunt was just so shattered by it that she's just convinced that they'll come back any time. So she leaves the window open all day, every day. Um, and, of course, <laughs> Mr. Nuttall is, is just really just kind of, you know, taken aback by all this. It's very, very chilled. And that's exactly the moment when her aunt comes into the room <laughs> and says, dun, oh, dun, dun. Yeah, I hope Vera has been amusing you. And uh, Mr. Nuttall says, oh, she's been very interesting. And uh, and the aunt immediately says, I hope you don't mind the open window. My husband and brothers will be home directly from shooting. They always come in this way. Uh, they've been out for snipe in the marshes today, so they make a fine mess all over my carpet. So like you men folk, isn't it? And so she goes, cheer- as, as it says here, cheerfully rattling on. <laughs> Meanwhile, Mr. Nuttall is just horrified but more and more by this, like, ghastly, like, you know, look into madness. Uh, but he's, you know, sort of saying like, uh, you know, I'm supposed to avoid anything kind of mental excitement or any kind of violent, uh, physical exercise. Um, he's, he's convinced that Mrs. Sappleton is, is talking to him in a distracted way, you know, that she's really, she's not, she's far off, you know, glancing over at the window, expecting them at any time. And he's, he's quite, uh, quite deeply affected by this, uh, and the teenager takes a look out at the door. The child was staring out through the open window with a dazed horror in her eyes. In a chill shock of nameless fear, Frampton swung round in his seat and looked the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn toward the window. They all carried guns under their arms. And um, one of them is, is carrying the telltale uh, white coat hung over his shoulders with a, with a brown spaniel. Uh, Frampton immediately frantically grabs at his stick and hat is out the door without saying a word just motoring <laughs> he is gone out of there <laughs> he cannot for his nerves he cannot have anything to do with this um and uh, it all winds up with uh you know the, the husband comes in like oh here we are my dear fairly muddy but you know mostly dry who was that who bolted when we came up and a most extraordinarily man and mr nuttall says the aunt he could only talk about his illnesses and dashed off without a word of goodbye or apology and then the uh, the fifteen year old says like oh I expect it was the spaniel said the niece calmly he told me he had a horror of dogs he was once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of pariah dogs and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above him enough to make anyone lose their nerve and the last <laughs> line in the story is romance at short notice was her specialty <laughs> just a marvelous yeah. little just a wonderful little very elegant and efficient uh shaggy dog story i suppose <laughs> oh yeah well i i think what what i love about this is that it really does do a good job of winding you into mm-hmm. a ghost story absolutely you know, it, it 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 sort of what 
what the girl does to uh, Mr. Nuttle, Saki does to us. Yes, right? yes. And so, like, if if you're unsuspecting, if you're unaware of the other writings, if, you know, you don't quite know what you're getting into, you really can think, oh, okay, this is going to be some kind of haunted house or, or something. And he just pulls this wonderful prank on all of us. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But I love romance at short notice. and And part of what... Excuse me. Part of what uh, I believe she's referring to is an ad, th- there was a Rudyard Kipling story whose name escapes me about a guy who um, hid in a grave to escape from some kind of ghost mm-hmm. in the colonies or something like that. Uh, if, if you can get past the the really really troubling colonial racism. <coughs> Excuse me. In in Kipling, he's got some really good uh, creepy stories, but there, there's a lot to to overlook. In any case, um, yeah, I think she's sort of playing on this other genre as well. That's yeah. what I love about this is that this little girl can you know, romance at short notice <laughs> is sort of you know it's playing genre, it's playing ghost stories, it's playing this, it's playing Absolutely. that. I can tell this kind of ghost story. I can tell this kind of ghost story. And what I what I really loved is that uh, just as as sort of uh, testament to Monroe's skill as a short story author is that it it really is like it almost has like a three act structure in these yeah. <laughs> single pages that you are sucked into like I was fully like on board with like oh all right creepy they're going to really like wig out the uh, the the nerve guy and shatter him with some spooky happenings and, and it did <laughs> but it's not yeah. in the manner that you know we were expecting either it was really it's a really marvelous little story and I and I you know what I'm going to get that uh that the New York Review of Books uh, reprint that you mentioned, because that sounds lovely, and I'd love to read more from uh, from Monroe here. And also, oh, yeah. really, and I, this is not an un, this is not a paid promotion. <laughs> I have no business connection with New York Review of Books other than that I have a subscription. <laughs> you cannot, you literally cannot go wrong with the NYRB Press. I have, I have bought. Um, well, let's see. Yes, I have both bought and checked out from the library, sight unseen, totally gone in cold on a book simply because it was an NYRB uh, release and I've never been let down. Always been delighted. Oh, yeah. It's an incredible press. Oh, yeah. it, it really is. Um, they specialize in reprints of out-of-date or, or like out-of-print stuff, retranslating works that, you know, are <clears throat> sort of major significant works that haven't been updated in a long time. Like they did a retranslation or somebody did a translation for them of Berlin Alexander plots mm. uh, that, you know, that, that hadn't been updated since I think it came out. Yeah. Which yeah. was quite a while ago. That was actually, so, uh, like, I was thinking just not to go too long on the NYRB press uh, digression, but I actually discovered yeah. one of my now favorite authors, uh, favorite fiction authors, mm. uh, Jean Giono. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Via their new translation of uh, his work, A King Alone, which is a marvelous novel, I would recommend to anybody. And I ended up like after I read that one again, that's one of the ones that I just plucked with, just like ah, oh, you know, I'll give it a shot. And then of course I was scouring eBay for because of course most of his other books are out of print <laughs> or has been you know translated yeah. fifty years ago. So I you know, but uh, in any case, but we can uh, we, we we can we can go on from Saki to uh, the Stone Tape. And what's interesting, Claude, is that you ended up encountering this work in a way that I, I, I don't think I, I intended because I I should have sent you the link because it was originally a uh, BBC um, television play 
1972. And yeah. what you ended up listening to is, if I'm piecing this together correctly, was a uh, a radio drama version that was produced more recently in 2015. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> uh, I, I goofed up a little bit, but it, it was sort of a happy accident. Yeah. Um, I, it, okay, I had to listen to it on YouTube in uh, a couple installments in my office. But uh, it it really works on audio. I, I would like to track down the the original recording. It sounds really pretty cool. But the audio does some things that I'm I'm thinking the the original recording might not do. Okay, so the the basic wind up of this, and I don't want to give too much away, mm-hmm. uh, just because it, it is a cool, creepy mystery. It's not. <laughs> It's not like I'm deflating a three-page story. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, the 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 original uh, the original video version is produced in '72, and uh, it's basically about a bunch of <clears throat> scientists. Uh, they're a research team. They work for this um, electronics company. They're trying to develop a new um, recording system or something. And they go to a haunted house uh, and sort of trip up and think they start recording a ghost. And it, it, it plays like the theory itself, stone tape theory, uh, is this, okay, out of all the esoteric nonsense I have <laughs> immersed myself in, I never heard of this one. Yeah. Um, it goes back, I guess, to the 19th century. Uh, promulgated by Charles Babbage. Do you remember who he was? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, so he he's famous in uh, he was a foundational figure in digital computing, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. and uh, I knew about him because the the store where I did my computer games <laughs> That's when right. I was a kid in the mall, Babbages. Babbages. Yes, right. <laughs> and, and who helped him with that computer? Uh, well, he was Ada Lovelace, right? The the mathematician. Yeah, and who was her dad? Oh, that I my my lore ran out. The only legitimate child of George Gordon, Lord Byron. So we're oh, back to the romantics again. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in any case, um, <clears throat> they, they Babbage had this idea that um, I, I guess memory could be recorded in air, or that the atmosphere or the material around you would record human interactions hmm. right so it's sort of like that that stupid new age thing <laughs> okay, maybe i shouldn't be so this well but yeah, that stupid but... new age thing that you know water has memory right yeah, i was gonna memory. say yeah, yeah that it's... kind of uh tied in with homeopathy and stuff like that yeah 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 yeah. dude just just go get your vaccines <laughs> in any case um the the it, it sort of plays into that and it's also a precursor to the idea of a residual haunting. Yeah. Um, that, uh, okay, if you've seen Ghostbusters, you know what I'm talking about. That uh, uh, a ghost, or that there's one particular kind of ghost that repeats an action or activity over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> sort of like they're caught on a loop. Now, if you want to see a good version of this, there's some later plays of Beckett's 
that seem to play with this idea of a character sort of caught over and over again. And Purgatory and Limbo was kind of like a, a fascination of Beckett. Yeah. So there's some of his late, 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 very brief dramas that are all sort of about repetitive action over and over again that can kind of be read as you know him playing with this idea of residual haunting that these are ghosts or these are leftovers that were trapped in this sort of existential way in any case um yeah that's what the the theory sort of proposes so in the 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 tv production these scientists go in they're trying to at least as i understand it Mm -hmm. they go in they try to record something they think they record a ghost one of them dies but it turns out that it's the the repetition over and over again of the same image that Mm -hmm. the character who dies is a repetition of the person who died there or was murdered there years and years ago there actually is a ghost that kills her okay You, you get the idea um, the radio play does something really kind of fascinating. First off, um, if you've got really good headphones, you can listen to it on YouTube and it's sort of like optimized for all kinds of weird sound. Hmm. Yeah. So it's coming in all kinds of weird different places and that works out to its benefit because they switch it, you know, it's it's instead of visual, it's audio from instead of 1972, it's 79. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> they switch it to audio. So it's this group of, you know, inventors, scientists, engineers who have invented some kind of sonic drilling machine. Hmm. So what, you know, they're testing it out in this house that they've rented that's supposed to be haunted. But um, the sound, the the sound of the sonic drilling machine is this thing that seems to stimulate the rocks in the basement, which recreate the sound of someone being murdered. Yeah. So the the thing that it does that I think is kind of fascinating, I mean, it still sort of follows the same plot, but it's you know, all this stuff going on. But the thing that it does that's fascinating is it gets a little Blair Witchy with it, right? Yeah. Um, It's, excuse me, it's, how do I put this? At certain points, you can't quite tell, okay, which one is the audio that they're listening to or recreating? Which one is the audio that they are making yeah does that make sense yeah so what what am i listening to and there's several layers i guess of of depth to who is doing what when where why and how Mm -hmm. and so it plays with that kind of i guess metatextual aspect in some ways that really is pretty creepy by the end the ending um i mean you kind of know what's going to happen going in but how it actually plays at the very end how it actually concludes is is really effective as far as audio sound goes yeah i don't like i i i'm trying not to be too vague but i also don't want to spoil (laughs) it it's it's just a really cool ending i thought yeah so in any case um yeah i'm definitely gonna have to listen to that because i like knowing that it was this real like total reworking 
Uh, that's awesome. I'm going to have to check it out uh, for myself. So look at this. I thought I was assigning you something that I knew uh, well enough, but uh, <laughs> circumstances, of course, this being the cannonball, uh, threw us for a loop. Well, yeah, you know, that's the nature of our beast, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, out of vengeance, I should make you go read uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, but uh, it, it really is a fantastic story um that's stevenson's story and stevenson's gothic stuff is a lot of fun to check out um everybody knows jekyll and hyde but a lot of his just regular creepy stuff that he threw out there is 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 really brilliant yeah so uh Go do that instead. <laughs> That's right. Well, well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us on our uh, Agoraphobia 2022 outing for the Cannonball. Uh, if uh, you Agora listeners out there enjoyed listening to Claude and I discuss some cool works that we read and or listened to, you'll love our main show, The Cannonball. So uh, please go check that out. And, of course, as always, uh, check out all of the other uh, Agoraphobia special episodes here on the network feed. And please check out all of our sister shows on the Agora Podcast Network. High-quality stuff, all independently produced. Uh, You really can't find better listening on the whole internet. Um, But thanks, everybody. And, uh, hey, we'll see you around on the Cannonball. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And in our last entry this year, we have he who is Agoraphobia's eldest, who is here before the river and the trees, who remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn, he who knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless, the history of China podcasts, Chris Stewart, who presents Edgar Allan Poe's The Facts in the case of Monsieur Valdemar. The facts in the case of Monsieur Valdemar. Of course, I shall not pretend to consider it any matter for wonder that the extraordinary case of Monsieur Valdemar has excited discussion. It would have been a miracle had it not, especially under the circumstances. Through the desire of all parties concerned to keep the affair from the public, at least for the present, or until we had further opportunities for investigation, through our endeavors to effect this, a garbled or exaggerated account made its way into society, and became the source of many unpleasant misrepresentations, and, very naturally, of a great deal of disbelief. 
It is now rendered necessary that I give the facts as far as I can comprehend them myself. They are, succinctly, these. My attention, for the last three years, has been repeatedly drawn to the subject of mesmerism, and about nine months ago, it occurred to me, quite suddenly, that in the series of experiments made hitherto, there had been a very remarkable and most unaccountable omission. No person had as yet been mesmerized in articulo mortis. It remained to be seen, first, whether in such a condition there existed in the patient any susceptibility to the magnetic influence. Secondly, whether, if any existed, it was impaired or increased by the condition. Thirdly, to what extent, or for how long a period, the encroachments of death might be arrested by the process. There were other points to be ascertained, but these most excited my curiosity. The last, in especial, from the immensely important character of its consequences. In looking around me for some subject by whose means I might test these particulars, I was brought to think of my friend, Monsieur Ernest Valdemar, the well-known compiler of the Bibliotheca Forensica, and author, under the nom de plume of Issachar Marx, of the Polish versions of Wallenstein and Gargantua. Monsieur Valdemar, who has resided principally in Harlem, New York, since the year 1839, is, or was, particularly noticeable for the extreme spareness of his person. His lower limbs much resembling those of John Randolph, and also for the whiteness of his whiskers, in violent contrast to the blackness of his hair. The latter, in consequence, being very generally mistaken for a wig. His temperament was markedly nervous, and rendered him a good subject for mesmeric experiment. On two or three occasions, I had put him to sleep with little difficulty, but was disappointed in other results which his peculiar constitution had naturally led me to anticipate. His will was at no period positively or thoroughly under my control, and in regard to clairvoyance, I could accomplish with him nothing to be relied upon. I always attributed my failure at these points to the disordered state of his health. For some months previous to my becoming acquainted with him, his physicians had declared him in a confirmed thysis. It was his custom, indeed, to speak calmly of his approaching dissolution, as of a matter neither to be avoided nor regretted. When the ideas to which I have alluded first occurred to me, it was of course very natural that I should think of Monsieur Valdemar. I knew the steady philosophy of the man too well to apprehend any scruples from him, and he had no relatives in America who would be likely to interfere. I spoke to him frankly upon the subject, and to my surprise, his interest seemed vividly excited. I say to my surprise, for although he had always yielded his person freely to my experiments, he had never before given me any tokens of sympathy with what I did. His disease was of that character which would admit the exact calculation in respect to the epoch of its termination and death, and it was finally arranged between us that he would send for me about twenty-four hours before the period announced by his physicians as that of his decease. It is now rather more than seven months since I received, from Monsieur Valdemar himself, the subjoined note. My dear P, you may as well come now. D and F are agreed that I cannot hold out beyond tomorrow midnight, and I think they have hit the time very nearly. Valdemar. I received this note within half an hour after it was written, and in fifteen minutes more I was in the dying man's chamber. I had not seen him for ten days, 
and was appalled by the fearful alteration which the brief interval had wrought in him. His face wore a leaden hue, his eyes were utterly lusterless, and the emaciation was so extreme that the skin had been broken through by the cheekbones. His expectoration was excessive. The pulse was barely perceptible. He retained, nevertheless, in a very remarkable manner, both his mental power and a certain degree of physical strength. He spoke with distinctness, took some palliative medicines without aid, and when I entered the room, was occupied in penciling memoranda in a pocketbook. He was propped up in his bed by pillows. Doctors D and F were in attendance. After pressing Valdemar's hand, I took these gentlemen aside and obtained from them a minute account of the patient's condition. The left lung had been for 18 months in a semi-osseous or cartilaginous state, and was, of course, entirely useless for all purposes of vitality. The right, in its upper portion, was also partially, if not thoroughly, ossified, but the lower region was merely a mass of purulent tubercles, running one into another. Several extensive perforations existed, and at one point, permanent adhesion to the ribs had taken place. These appearances in the right lobe were of comparatively recent date. The ossification had proceeded with very unusual rapidity. No sign of it had been discovered a month before, and the adhesion had only been observed during the three previous days. Independently of the thysis, the patient was suspected of aneurysm of the aorta, but on this point, the osseous symptoms rendered an exact diagnosis impossible. It was the opinion of both physicians that Monsieur Valdemar would die about midnight on the morrow, Sunday. It was then seven o'clock on Saturday evening. On quitting the invalid's bedside to hold conversation with myself, doctors D and F had bidden him a final farewell. It had not been their intention to return, but at my request, they agreed to look in on the patient about ten the next night. When they had gone, I spoke freely with Monsieur Valdemar on the subject of his approaching dissolution, as well as, more particularly, of the experiment proposed. He still professed himself quite willing and even anxious to have it made, and urged me to commence it at once. A male and female nurse were in attendance, but I did not feel myself altogether at liberty to engage in a task of this character with no more reliable witnesses than these people, in case of sudden accident, might prove. I therefore postponed operations until about eight the next night, when the arrival of a medical student, with whom I had some acquaintance, Mr. Theodore L., relieved me from my farther embarrassment. It had been my design, originally, to wait for the physicians, but I was induced to proceed, first, by the urgent entreaties of Monsieur Valdemar, and secondly, by my conviction that I had not a moment to lose, as he was evidently sinking fast. Mr. L. was so kind as to accede to my desire that he would take notes of all that occurred, and it is from his memoranda that what I now have to relate is, for the most part, either condensed or copied verbatim. It wanted about five minutes of eight when, taking the patient's hand, I begged him to state, as distinctly as he could, to Mr. L., whether he, Mr. Valdemar, was entirely willing that I should make the experiment of mesmerizing him in his then condition. He replied feebly, yet quite audibly, Yes, I wish to be mesmerized. Adding immediately afterwards, I fear you have deferred it too long. While he spoke thus, I commenced the passes which I had already found most effectual in subduing him. He was evidently influenced with the first lateral strokes of my hand across his forehead. But although I exerted all my powers, no farther perceptible effect was induced until some minutes after ten o'clock, when doctors D and F called, according to appointment. 
I explained to them, in a few words, what I designed. And as they opposed no objection, saying that the patient was already in the death agony, I proceeded without hesitation, exchanging, however, the lateral passes for downward ones, and directing my gaze entirely into the right eye of the sufferer. By this time his pulse was imperceptible, and his breathing was stertorous, and at intervals of half a minute. This condition was nearly unaltered for a quarter of an hour. At the expiration of this period, however, a natural, although a very deep, sigh escaped the bosom of the dying man, and the stertorous breathing ceased. That is to say, its stertorousness was no longer apparent. The intervals were undiminished. The patient's extremities were of an icy coldness. At five minutes before eleven, I perceived unequivocal signs of the mesmeric influence. The glassy roll of the eye was changed for that expression of uneasy inward examination, which is never seen except in cases of sleepwalking, and which it is quite impossible to mistake. With a few rapid lateral passes, I made the lids quiver, as in incipient sleep, and with a few more, I closed them altogether. I was not satisfied, however, with this, but continued the manipulations vigorously, and with the fullest exertion of the will, until I had completely stiffened the limbs of the slumberer, after placing them in a seemingly easy position. The legs were at full length, the arms were nearly so, and reposed on the bed at moderate distance from the loins. The head was very slightly elevated. When I had accomplished this, it was fully midnight, and I requested the gentlemen present to examine Monsieur Valdemar's condition. After a few experiments, they admitted him to be in an unusually perfect state of mesmeric trance. The curiosity of both the physicians was greatly excited. Dr. D resolved at once to remain with the patient all night, while Dr. F took leave with promise to return at daybreak. Mr. L and the nurses remained. We left Monsieur Valdemar entirely undisturbed until about three o'clock in the morning, when I approached him and found him in precisely the same condition as when Dr. F went away. That is to say, he lay in the same position. The pulse was imperceptible. The breathing was gentle, scarcely noticeable, unless through the application of a mirror to the lips. The eyes were closed naturally, and the limbs were as rigid and as cold as marble. Still, the general appearance was certainly not that of death. As I approached Monsieur Valdemar, I made a kind of half-effort to influence his right arm into pursuit of my own, as I passed the latter gently to and fro above his person. In such experiments with this patient, I had never perfectly succeeded before, and assuredly I had little thought of succeeding now. But, to my astonishment, his arm very readily, although feebly, followed every direction I assigned it with mine. I determined to hazard a few words of conversation. Monsieur Valdemar, I said, are you asleep? He made no answer, but I perceived a tremor about the lips, and was thus induced to repeat the question again and again. At his third repetition, his whole frame was agitated by a very slight shivering. The eyelids unclosed themselves so far as to display a white line of a ball. The lips moved sluggishly, and from between them, in a barely audible whisper, issued the words, Yes. Here I felt the limbs, and found them as rigid as ever. The right arm, as before, obeyed the direction of my hand. I questioned the sleep-waker again. Do you still feel pain in the breast, Monsieur Valdemar? The answer now was immediate, but even less audible than before. No pain. I am dying. I did not think it advisable to disturb him farther just then, and nothing more was said or done until the arrival of Dr. F., 
who came a little before sunrise and expressed unbounded astonishment at finding the patient still alive. After feeling the pulse and applying a mirror to the lips, he requested me to speak to the sleep-waker again, and I did so, saying, Monsieur Valdemar, do you still sleep? As before, some minutes elapsed ere a reply was made, and during the interval the dying man seemed to be collecting his energies to speak. At my fourth repetition of the question, he said very faintly, almost inaudibly, Yes, still asleep, dying. It was now the opinion, or rather the wish, of the physicians that Monsieur Valdemar should be suffered to remain undisturbed in his present apparently tranquil condition until death should supervene. And this, it was generally agreed, must now take place within a few minutes. I concluded, however, to speak with him once more, and merely repeated my previous question. While I spoke, there came a marked change over the countenance of the sleepwaker. The eyes rolled themselves slowly open, the pupils disappearing upwardly. The skin generally assumed a cadaverous hue, resembling not so much parchment as white paper. And the circular hectic spots which hitherto had been strongly defined in the center of each cheek went out at once. I use this expression because the suddenness of their departure put me in mind of nothing so much as the extinguishment of a candle by a puff of the breath. The upper lip, at the same time, writhed itself away from the teeth, which it had previously covered completely, while the lower jaw fell with an audible jerk, leaving the mouth widely extended and disclosing in full view the swollen and blackened tongue. I presume that no member of the party then present had been unaccustomed to deathbed horrors, but so hideous beyond conception was the appearance of Monsieur Valdemar at this moment that there was a general shrinking back from the region of the bed. I now feel that I have reached a point of this narrative at which every reader will be startled into positive disbelief. It is my business, however, simply to proceed. There was no longer the faintest sign of vitality in Monsieur Valdemar, and concluding him to be dead, we were consigning him to the charge of the nurses when a strong vibratory motion was observable in the tongue. This continued for perhaps a minute. At the expiration of this period, there issued from the distended and motionless jaws a voice, such that it would be madness in me to attempt describing. There are, indeed, two or three epithets which might be considered as applicable to it in part. I might say, for example, that the sound was harsh and broken and hollow, but the hideous whole is indescribable, for the simple reason that no similar sounds have ever jarred upon the ear of humanity. There were two particulars, nevertheless, which I thought then, and still think, might fairly be stated as characteristic of the intonation, as well adapted to convey some idea of its unearthly peculiarity. In the first place, the voice seemed to reach our ears, at least mine, from a vast distance, or from some deep cavern within the earth. In the second place, it impressed me. I fear indeed that it will be impossible to make myself comprehended as gelatinous or glutinous matters impress the sense of touch. I have spoken both of sound and of voice. I mean to say that the sound was one of, of even wonderfully, thrillingly distinct syllabification. Monsieur Valdemar spoke, obviously in reply to the question I had propounded to him a few minutes earlier. I had asked him, it will be remembered, if he still slept. He now said, Yes. No. 
I have been sleeping. And now, now, I am dead. No person present even affected to deny or attempted to repress the unutterable shuddering horror which these few words thus uttered were so well calculated to convey. Mr. L, the student, swooned. The nurses immediately left the chamber and could not be induced to return. My own impressions I would not pretend to render intelligible to the audience. For nearly an hour, we busied ourselves, silently, without the utterance of a word, in endeavors to revive Mr. L. When he came to himself, we addressed ourselves again to an investigation of Monsieur Valdemar's condition. It remained in all respects as I have last described it, with the exception that the mirror no longer afforded evidence of respiration. An attempt to draw blood from the arm failed. I should mention, too, that this limb was no farther subject to my will. I endeavored in vain to make it follow the direction of my hand. The only real indication, indeed, of the mesmeric influence was now found in the vibratory movement of the tongue whenever I addressed Monsieur Valdemar a question. He seemed to be making an effort to reply, but had no longer sufficient volition. To queries put to him by any other person than myself, he seemed utterly insensible, although I endeavored to place each member of the company in mesmeric rapport with him. I believe that I have now related all that is necessary to an understanding of the sleep-waker's state at this epoch. Other nurses were procured, and at ten o'clock I left the house in company with the two physicians and Mr. L. In the afternoon, we all called again to see the patient. His condition remained precisely the same. We had now some discussion as to the propriety and feasibility of awakening him, but we had little difficulty in agreeing that no good purpose would be served by so doing. It was evident that, so far, death, or what is usually termed death, had been arrested by the mesmeric process. It seemed clear to us that to awaken Monsieur Valdemar would be merely to ensure his instant, or at least his speedy, dissolution. From this period, until the close of last week, an interval of nearly seven months, we continued to make daily calls at Monsieur Valdemar's house, accompanied, now and then, by medical and other friends. All this time, the sleeper-waker remained exactly as I have last described him. The nurse's attentions were continual. It was on Friday last that we finally resolved to make the experiment of awakening, or at least attempting to awaken him. And it is the, perhaps, unfortunate result of this latter experiment which has given rise to so much discussion in private circles, to so much of what I cannot help thinking unwarranted popular feeling. For the purpose of relieving Monsieur Valdemar from the mesmeric trance, I made use of the customary passes. These, for a time, were unsuccessful. The first indication of revival was afforded by the partial descent of the iris. It was observed, as especially remarkable, that this lowering of the pupil was accompanied by the profuse outflowing of a yellowish ichor from beneath the lids of a pungent and highly offensive odor. It was now suggested that I should attempt to influence the patient's arm, as heretofore. I made the attempt and failed. Dr. F. then intimated a desire to have me put a question. I did so as followed. 
Monsieur Valdemar, can you explain to us what are your feelings or wishes now? There was an instant return to the hectic circles on the cheeks. The tongue quivered, or rather rolled violently in the mouth, although the jaws and lips remained rigid as before. And the same hideous voice which I have already described broke forth. For God's sake, quick, quick, put me to sleep, or quick, waken me, quick, I say to you that I am dead. I was thoroughly unnerved, and for an instant remained undecided what to do. At first, I made an endeavor to recompose the patient, but failing this through total abeyance of the will, I retraced my steps and as earnestly struggled to awaken him. In this attempt, I soon saw that I should be successful, or at least I soon fancied that my success would be complete, and I am sure that all in the room were prepared to see the patient awaken. For what really occurred, however, it is quite impossible that any human being could have been prepared. As I rapidly made the mesmeric passes, I made ejaculations of dead, dead, absolutely bursting from the tongue and not from the lips of the sufferer. His whole frame, at once, within the space of a single minute or even less, shrunk, crumbled, absolutely rotted away beneath my hands. Upon the bed, before that whole company, there lay a nearly liquid mass of loathsome, detestable putridity. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back, and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 